All right, well, good morning. Um, I should apologize. Uh, I made, you, you might have noticed that uh, since we started worshiping inside again, uh, I've stopped putting uh, scripture on the PowerPoint. Uh, and that was a really intentional decision on my part, but I never shared it with you. So like the intentionality kind of falls short if I didn't share it with you. So um, uh, if you recall during our family meetings, uh, we had this uh, growing sense of like people saying that they wanted to get their hands on scripture and like find ways of wrestling with it to get back into it. And um, I had a thought of like, well, if we want to get our hands on scripture, maybe we should actually like get our literal hands on scripture. <laughs> so I stopped putting the scripture on the screen so that, you know, if we're trying to like figure our way through the Bible, you know, like where is first Samuel? We know, oh, hey, look, it's in the first third here, right? But I never communicated that to you. So you might just be sitting in darkness. So uh, I apologize for that. Um, but now you know. So if you got out of ha- a habit of bringing your Bible, um, maybe it'd be good to, to bring it again or a device of some sort. I'm a little old school. I like paper. We also have some NRSVs in the back. Uh, that's the translation I use. I think we have a bunch of NIVs somewhere else. We can figure those out. Uh, if you'd like a Bible, let us know. We'll figure something out. Uh, but I felt... Uh, compelled to to share all of that this morning. So uh, this morning we're actually going to continue just working our way through scripture here in our series, uh, Stories of Old, A Journey Through the Old Testament. So as we get ready to jump into that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we are uh, grateful for this chance to to gather together and to be together, uh, to see one another, whether that be here in person or uh, on Zoom. We're grateful uh, for this community and the gift that it is in our lives. Uh, God, we, uh, we pause now and we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us. And as we turn to the scriptures, we, uh, we yield ourselves to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so this morning, uh, I want to begin with a little bit of inventory in our lives. So... How is your heart? Uh, Metaphorically, of course, I'm not a cardiologist, uh, but I am a pastor, so I care about your metaphorical heart. How's your heart doing? Um, Or maybe we could ask, how is your soul doing? Um, Maybe we could ask, uh, where are you today? Or maybe we could just simply ask, how are you doing? Um, Maybe this morning as you come in, like you feel a bit heavy. Um, maybe there's some things happening in your life or in the life of a friend or family member, or perhaps it's like reading the headlines, like you feel this heaviness, like you come in today feeling like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. Um, uh, maybe uh, you're coming in today, like you're thinking, I, I can't be, I couldn't be any better. Like you're riding some sort of euphoric high from Sarah's hunter-gatherer thing last night, and like you woke up with a smile plastered on your face, right? And like you feel this joy pumping through your system with your very blood, and, or perhaps uh, you're feeling a bit meh. <laughs> uh, neither good nor bad. You're here. That feels good. Or perhaps you're like me and you're like, ask me in three days because I feel deeply, but it's a big jumbled ball of yarn and it's going to take me a while to unsort it. And in three days, I'll actually feel a little different than I do now, but that's neither here nor there, right? How, how's your heart? Um, I, th- I think this is an important question because... Uh, 
I think the heart's an important thing in our life. Uh, I think our hearts are often um, seen as like the, the seedbed of things like motivation, the seedbed of things like desire, the, the things that, that like catapult us towards the type of people that we want to become, that catapult us into the things that we want to do. I think our hearts often like the thing behind the thing or the thing perhaps beneath the thing, right? Um, often like our, our motivation for the things that we do in our life. And so that feels important. But also, like, as we, like, read through scripture, like, we get this sense that, like, God places, like, um, a good deal of importance on things like our hearts. Uh, again, recognizing, like, they are the seedbed of motivation. It is the seedbed of motives and desires. And so, because of all of that, like, I think we would do good to, like, pause this morning and take an inventory of our own heart. So one of the places that we see uh, God drawing a particular sort of importance to the heart is in 1 Samuel 16. So we're going to just jump right in, and we'll, we'll pause for some context along the way. Sound good? Good. So 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So if you recall last week, we talked about a little boy named Samuel who heard God calling to him. Well, now Samuel's all done, gone, grown up, and is now having like stepping into this like official role of leadership within uh, the nation of Israel among the people of God. And God comes to Samuel here and asks him, "How long will you grieve over Saul? Don't you know I've rejected him as king?" Which, if we're not familiar with Saul, this leads to a good question of, "Who in the world's Saul?" <laughs> well, verse one gives us this context that Saul was king of Israel. But not just a king, he was the first king. He was the first one. He was the, 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 uh, the prototype of, of what it would look like to, or the experiment of what it would look like to have a king. But the fact that Saul was king is a, a bit complicated because Israel was never intended to have a human king. They were never intended to have a person fulfill this role of protecting and providing them and leading them in this way. But rather, this role was meant to be reserved for God's very self. And so the fact that like, they had a king is, is complicated. But we come to this point in their, early on in their history where they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king. We want to be like all of the other nations. Which is particularly concerning because from their very beginning, God calls them to be not like the other nations, but to be separate, to be distinct, to be a light, to be an example, to be a witness to all of the other nations of what it means to be human. This life and this way of being that God is inviting us into. And so as they come demanding to be like all of the other nations, we see that this is like a blatant rejection of this invitation, this call of God in their life. And so Samuel gets serious with the people here, and he warns them, like, the consequences of having a king. He's like, I don't think you want to actually want to have a human king, because here are all of the things that a king will demand of you. We can summarize these into two things. He essentially says, like, a king will send off your sons into battle. A king will lead us into war. And a king is going to shave a little bit of, off the top of everything that you produce and everything that you make. We call this taxes. He says, you don't want a king because you'll have war and you'll have taxes prevalent all throughout your land. And yet the people push back and they say, we want a king. Which brings us now to Saul. Now Saul, at first glance, uh, looks like a king, right? Uh, we're told elsewhere that he was like head and shoulders above everybody. He was this tall guy. He was, he was big. He was handsome. And like somebody that like you would respect, right? Like a modern day, like Jason Momoa, right? Uh, Aquaman, right? Anybody? Yeah? 
I'm a Mennonite. Like I won't, I won't follow anybody into battle, but I'd be tempted to follow him into battle because I think he could like take everybody on his own. But like, this is the sense that we get with, uh, with Saul. Like he's the epitome of somebody that you would trust, someone who could lead you. Uh, he was big, tall, strong, handsome, came from a wealthy family. And yet this experiment of Saul being king was an absolute train wreck <laughs> because Saul was an absolute train wreck. Like we see from the very beginning of him being king, there's this process uh, that, that Samuel leads into of casting lots, which is essentially like rolling dice. The, the thought is like God would, would lead the dice or the lots to like pick someone. And the, uh, Samuel's leading the people through this process and he's, he's casting the lots and the lots fall to Saul. And, but the problem is like Saul's nowhere to be found. <laughs> Saul's hanging out in a supply closet because he's terrified of this. Like Saul actually knew all of this was going to happen. Like prior to this, God, or Samuel had told Saul that he would be selected as king, and yet he's hiding out in the supply closet. We see elsewhere that Saul is leading the people into battle, which would be a common theme throughout his life. And he comes to this point where uh, Samuel's supposed to show up at a, a, an allotted amount of time and, and uh, offer a sacrifice. But they get to this point where like, the people are losing, like uh, 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 victory seems far off in the distance, and so... Saul looks around, Samuel's not there, so he offers the sacrifice. And wouldn't you know it, Samuel walks in right after he's done and says, what have you done? Uh, we see elsewhere that uh, Saul is in battle, again, a common theme throughout his life. And like things aren't looking good, and so he makes this rash oath that anybody who eats before uh, a certain time period will die. Unfortunately, his son didn't hear this, and so you know he ate, again, creating an awkward sort of Thanksgiving later on in the year. Um, and then we see... Uh, Saul leading the people into battle again. He's supposed to wipe the land clean, but yet he takes the best as like spoils of war and comes back. And at this point, God has had it. And God is like, I, I can't do it anymore. I've, I've rejected him as king. We're done with this experiment. We're moving on to someone else. Which brings us then back to 1 Samuel 16. So God sends uh, Samuel to Jesse uh, in the town of Bethlehem. And now Samuel needs to be like pretty coy about all of this because again, like Saul's pretty quick to react to go into battle. So if he catches wind that he's trying to replace him, well, you know, Samuel's life may be in danger. So he gets to, to Jesse's house real coy and he starts like checking out his sons. So the first one comes out and you can imagine he does a little bit of an up down, right? He's thinking in his mind like, well, if, tall's big, if Saul's tall, big, strong, and handsome, then the obvious choice is we need someone who's bigger, who's taller, who's stronger, who's more handsome, just more of Saul, right? And so he checks out this first son and he's, he's feeling pretty good about it. But then we're told in verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So here God like confronts Samuel and says, listen, you're looking at all the wrong things. You're looking at like who's big, who's tall, who's strong, who's handsome. You're looking at the outward stuff. Like I'm not actually concerned with that, but rather I'm looking for someone who's in tune with their own heart. And so uh, Samuel asked Jesse to bring the rest of the sons out. So again, we can imagine like a bit of like a fashion show runway again, doing the up down, working his way through and it's no, 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 no. Gets to the end and he's like, is this all you got, Jesse? And Jesse says uh, in verse 11, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. 
He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So catch what happens. We work our way through all of Jesse's sons, all of the brothers, and Samuel doesn't find one fit to be king. And so he's like, is this all you got? And Jesse's like, oh, wait, we have one more. Uh, he's, he's the youngest, but it's a bit of an afterthought, right? Now let me speak as someone who is the youngest of my family. <laughs> this hits home, right? Like, I took this a bit personally because all my life it was, look at the Swanson men coming through. And then, oh, here comes cute little Sean. Well, darn it, now Sean's the second biggest. I struck a wound here, apparently. <laughs> David was an afterthought. Why? Because like, if you look at like, his outward resume, like, there was nothing about him that should have been king. He was the runt of the litter, if you will. They sent him out to take care of the sheep because he was probably too hyper and to put up with in the house. So go take care of the sheep. And yet, we're told that he seems to be like, uh, in tune with his heart. Or, uh, that, uh, it seems that, that there's something about his heart that God finds favorable. So let's talk about David's heart. Good or bad? Well, we're told, I think, twice in Scripture that David was a man after God's own heart, which seems like a pretty good sort of attribute to have, right? And yet, David was also a bit of a train wreck. <laughs> David had his own sorts of failures. There was the incident with Bathsheba where he uses his kingly authority, and we might even say intimidation, to bring her into his quarters. And uh, she is now found with child and so attempts to cover it up by sending her husband onto the front lines to, you know, cover up this thing nicely. Um, Bathsheba's not the only sort of woman that's in his quarters and he's got all sorts of problems because of that. And then uh, there's another episode where his uh, son commits a, an atrocity against his sister uh, and David doesn't confront this and now it leads to all of this conflict and attempted coup. Again, a very awkward Thanksgiving that next year. And then we come to this moment where David counts the entire nation, which is a way of saying, like, I'm putting all of my hope and trust and faith in our military might instead of God's protection and provision in our life. We add all of those up and David seems like a bit of a train wreck and yet never once, to my knowledge, is this description of a man after God's own heart ripped away from him. What gives? <laughs> I think Psalm 51 gives us a little bit of an indication of what's happening in David's life. Um, Psalm 51 is attributed to David, and there's lots of speculation around like why David wrote Psalm 51, but I don't think that matters as much as like the fact that like David did write this, and I think this gives us a glimpse into his inner world. So David writes this psalm. David writes this song, this this pr this prayer, and he writes saying. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. We jump to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. 
we read this, and I don't know about you, but I, I get a sense that like David was like deeply in tune with his own heart. <laughs> David was deeply flawed, and I don't think that David would deny that. We get here a glimpse into like David's prayer journal, and like there seems to be this deep recognition, like my heart is in one place, but like the the way that I live out my life is in a very different place, and he's very aware of all of this. It gives us the sense that David is very, very much in tune with his heart, and I think that that's kind of the key to all of this. So perhaps we might even say that to be a person after God's own heart means that we must first be in tune with our own heart. David seemed to be so incredibly aware of the state of his own heart, of like the inner workings of his inner world. He seemed to be in tune with his heart, very aware of all of these sorts of things. And I wonder, are we? And I think this is a, a really sort of vital question for us to ask because, again, like we've seen all throughout Scripture like this, uh, this insight that God is wanting to partner with us as humanity uh, in this work of God here on earth. It's as though God, in some ways, like, wants to hand us the keys to the car of creation. Of course, sitting in the driver's seat and like the old school driver's ed with, the, his foot on the, with God's foot on the brake, right? But like, wants to hand us the keys to creation so that we can participate in the work of God. So to be a person after God's own heart means that like, we are intent on becoming the type of people that God longs for us to be, to, to be part of the things uh, that God would long for us to be about here on earth. But before we can do any of that, I think we first have to be in tune with our own hearts. Um, uh, I came uh, uh, across this sort of, or I, I became aware of this uh, when I was in college. I was, uh, I was interning at a pretty big, like, influential church in uh, the particular town that it was in. And uh, they had started um, exploring the idea of planning a church uh, in a nearby community. And... Uh, to say it as humbly as I can, I was killing it as an intern. Uh, and there was, uh, there was talk of like potentially hiring me on to plant this church. And so I was really involved in like some of the decision that making that was happening. Uh, I was involved in like preaching there pretty regularly. And like it, they were like in some ways like grooming me to, to like take this church over. And there came a moment where like we had to have a bit of a DTR. Like they were like, do you want this? Like, <laughs> because we're moving forward with or without you. And in that moment, I realized I never actually asked myself if I wanted that. <laughs> um, on the outward, like, it looked like a beautiful opportunity. This was a big church that could support it and like, give me all of the resources that I wanted. But I never stopped to like, check my own heart to see where I was in all of this. Because to take that job would have meant that Allie and I wouldn't have gotten married when we did, would have had to get bumped back. I would have like, had to put off grad school indefinitely, if not forever. Um, and when I began to like, get in tune with my own heart, I began to realize like, all of these other longings that God had put on my heart that didn't fit within this job. And so for me in that moment, to be a person after God's own heart, I first had to get in tune with my own heart. So how do we do this? How do we get in tune with our own heart so that we can like, get in tune with God's uh, heart? I think one of the ways that we can do this is through uh, prayer. Uh, the great theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard uh, writes about prayer saying, prayer is, above all, a means of forming character. It combines freedom and power with service and love. What God gets out of our lives, and indeed what we get out of our lives, is simply the person we become. It is God's intention that we should grow into the kind of person he could empower to do what we want to do. 
So notice some of the things that uh, Willard says here. Prayer is a means of forming character, like shaping us in a particular way. It's something that leads to the type of person that we become in this world. And this last line, my goodness, a big, bold, audacious sort of thing to say, so that God could empower us to do what we want to do. <laughs> Meaning like, this is not just like God handing us the keys to the kingdom and like sitting in the driver's seat with, with God's foot on the brake. Like this is God actually saying like, I trust you. I don't need to have my foot on the brake. Like I hand all of this over to you because I trust the type of person that you've become. And prayer gets us to this sort of place. So this is like the, the why behind prayer, but like, what's the what of prayer? Like, what are we actually talking about when we talk about prayer? Um, I'll be honest, I, I've struggled with prayer, like most of my adult life. Uh, it's never actually made sense. It feels like there's an awful lot like going out, but not a whole lot coming back in. And so I've wrestled with this idea of prayer a lot. I've thought about it a lot. I've read about it a lot. I think I would dare to say I've prayed about it a lot. And this is the best sort of like uh, description of prayer that I've been able to land on. I think prayer is an intentional act of bringing our whole self into the loving presence of God. It's an intentional act where we can bring our entire self, our whole heart, our, our self unmasked, unless we're in public, of course, right? But where we can bring ourself unmasked into the loving presence of God. And as we find ourselves in the loving presence of God, we can actually get in tune with our own hearts. Because in this space, we can actually be honest with who we are. And in this moment, as we're getting honest with who we are, we open ourselves up to this loving presence of God who can begin to like, shape us and lead us in a particular sort of way. Now, I think the, like, the intentional acts of opening ourselves up can be really diverse. Um, perhaps this is like talking, right? The good old, dear Jesus, uh, this is what's happening in my life, uh, and here's what I'm asking of you. I think through that, we can get in tune with our own hearts, and I think through that, we can get in tune with God's heart. Maybe uh, for you, this looks like silence in your life, just sitting with your feelings, with your emotions, with your thoughts, and allowing the Spirit of God to enter into that space and begin to reveal all sorts of things to you. Maybe this looks like writing, like prayerful journaling. Um, maybe this looks like reading scripture, uh, other like beautiful types of literature. Maybe it's reading uh, uh, liturgies, these sorts of things. But whatever it is, it's like this intentional act of bringing our whole self into the loving presence of God so that we can get in tune with our hearts and get in tune with God's heart. As we think about the life of David, um, he was a shepherd. <laughs> he spent hours upon hours upon hours out by himself tending to the sheep, which I can only imagine is an incredibly boring job at times. And I wonder if that was like the space and place for him to bring his whole self before the loving presence of God. If in that space of tending to the sheep, he was able to get in tune with his own heart and in this process, get in tune with the heart of God. So what are our spaces and places for prayer? What are our spaces and our places for this intentional act of bringing our whole self into the loving presence of God? Maybe your life uh, looks like you can get up and make a really nice cup of coffee and sit in silence and prayer before anybody else in the house gets up. Uh, or not. <laughs> maybe you have kids and that's not, a, not a, a realistic thing. And so maybe the only quiet space in your life is your commute. So instead of listening to NPR on the whole way, or if you're like me, Notre Dame football podcast, I get a little obsessive in the fall, um, uh, we, we hit mute on all of that. And our drive can be this space where like, we can like, open up ourselves 
to the loving presence of God, to get in tune with our heart, to get in tune with the heart of God. Um, maybe uh, outdoors is a really important thing for you. So going for a bike ride, going for a walk can be that space. Maybe it's doing dishes. uh, Or maybe it's even the Sunday School podcast, which has like these guided questions at the end that can help us get in tune with our own hearts. Again, I I don't think the like how we do it as important as like that we do it, that we have this intentional space and place in our life to bring our whole self into the loving presence of God. And I think lastly, once we get to that space and we get in tune with our own hearts, we allow ourselves to get a little bit curious. So maybe you're really frustrated. Ask the question, why? (laughs) Allow the spirit to like peel back the layers and take you deeper into your own heart. And as you do that, like allow yourself to get in tune with God's heart. Maybe you're happy. Maybe you realize it is because of Sarah's big shindig last night. And you're like, man, maybe I need more of that in my life, right? Again, that's getting us in tune with our heart, getting us in tune with God's heart. Um, I think prayer is a really important part of this uh, so that we can get in tune with our own heart, so that we can get in tune with God's heart. Because I think to be a person after God's own heart, we must first, uh, in some ways, get in tune with our own heart. So there's that. Um, I want to close uh, by reading Psalm 51 in its entirety as a prayer for us. But I also want to offer this as perhaps like a, a practice for us um, in the, the weeks to come. Maybe you have this space, this place in your life for like this act of prayer. Um, maybe this can be a, a prayer that you pray at the beginning of that space and place uh, to like get your heart right, to, to narrow in your focus on, on what your, uh, your intentions are during that time. Uh, so Psalm 51, let's pray. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you were justified in your sentence and blameless when you passed judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You you desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion and your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Amen.